symptoms for 30 years and that is why I created this space was to be able to help others find resources when they need them. So bottom line for those of you that are new, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort around the world. And we also help companies expand their brand footprint by leveraging our content to increase access uh, to their products, services, and tools for those who truly need them. Uh, and we, we do that basically because of all of you. You guys have been amazing. You see your likes, your clicks, your shares have um, expanded our reach significantly. And we just want to thank you all for doing that because I, I think we work much better together collaboratively to change our care culture and to raise everyone's voice. And I would also like to uh, invite you to be a guest on the show. You have a story to tell as well, um, and everyone is welcome. We interview people with dementia, um, family and friends caring for them, business professionals. We have authors and movie directors and singers and songwriters and advocates and researchers. Everyone is welcome uh, to have a respectful conversation about dementia. So um, please reach out to me at alzheimerspeaks.com and just push the big contact button up in the right-hand corner, and I would love to chat with you and we can see about changing the world together. You can also call in today and join the conversation at 323-874602. That's 323-870-4602. Now, before I introduce our guest, I always like to give a shout out to a few companies. And um, one of them that I, I just have to mention is Dementia Raw. Um, they are known really as the Silver Dawn Training Institute, um, but they are coming to Minnesota here, so I am really excited, August 6th and 7th in White Bear Lake, and I'm actually going to take their Certified Dementia Communication Specialist Training Program, and I would invite you to do the same. Um, these two gals have a real unique um, way of of teaching us how to live in the dementia world. Their approach is unscripted, unconventional, and unapologetic. And they deal with real-life scenarios and consider not only yours, but the patient's vantage point in their training program. So you can find out more about them by going to cdcsdementiaraw.com, cdcs DementiaRaw.com and come join me in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, or maybe you want them to come to your city. They would love to talk to you about that. I also want to throw out um, another company that I think is doing some really cool things. They have developed the Roberto app, which measures brain function. And it's a, it's a video game that you can engage with. You can get an uh, extended trial if you'd like. If you go to alzheimerspeaks.com and just push on their banner ad there. But it, um, it's something you can do multiple times a day or once a week or check in monthly just to see how you're doing. And it'll help you analyze your days. You know, have you been drinking enough water? Have you been getting enough sleep? Is there too much stress in your life? Because those are all going to be factors that are going to pop up um, when you do these video games. And a lot of um, symptoms, you know, can be reversed. 
Others, you you know, you might want to take this and actually show it to your physician if you're concerned about your memory function. But again, it, that is called the Roberto app, and you can just go to the robertoapp.com. And then Maria Schreiber just got through doing her Move for Minds uh, this past June, where she raised a, a nice deal of money for research. And she had some fantastic panels, which you can see on her website. If you go to the women's Alzheimer's movement.org, the women's Alzheimer's movement.org, um, she did like four different panels around the country, and um, all were very, very interesting in what is going on with research, specifically with women. So enough of the housekeeping. Let's uh, let's introduce our guest today because we're going to talk about misconceptions regarding dementia in senior housing with Catherine Owens, who is a nationally recognized senior living industry expert and author of the book, Be Your Own Hero, Senior Housing Decisions Simplified. Uh, she wrote this book in hopes of addressing some of the myths and stigmas regarding senior living. Um, Catherine is also the recipient of the 2017 um, Tribute to Women and Industry called Twin Award, which honors women who have um, excelled in their field and made a significant contribution to their industry. So we are excited to have her with us today. She also holds the current role as Executive Director for the Alzheimer's Association uh, Greater Ohio Chapter. Um, where she hopes to create more awareness of the impact of Alzheimer's disease on our nation as well as available support uh, to those who are impacted by this disease. So welcome, Catherine. How are you doing today? Thank you, Lori. I am doing fantastic, and thank you for having me on your show. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation, but before I go into my line of questioning, I always like to ask every individual if they have been personally touched by family or friends or themselves by dementia. That's a great question, Lori. I have not fortunately been impacted on a personal level with my immediate family. I have, however, through my years of working in the senior living industry, walked alongside hundreds of families who are going through the disease process who are affected and impacted by Alzheimer's and other dementias, which really is what got me involved in uh, volunteering and working in the Alzheimer's arena. Wow, that's uh, that's rare when I talk to somebody who hasn't been touched. But again, you're making up for it in the industry that you're working in <laughs> and feeling it there. And I'm like I said, I'm so excited to have you here. Um, I wanted to ask you, what is the number one con- uh, misconception related to aging and senior living services that that you have found, in, you know, over the years? The thing that I think comes up most often is as long as a person stays in their home, they're independent. Um, We equate being in our home and aging in place as um, being independent, and really it's a matter of having the right support in place and the right environment in place to meet whatever the current needs are that really allows for the best opportunity to be as independent as possible and have the best quality of life as possible as we age. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I used to sell real estate for like 25 years, and that was such a huge hurdle for people to get over. They, it was, they all thought it was about losing their independence instead of creating more independence. Um, by having the right fit. And I I remember having so many conversations with people about just saying, you know, this is just another stage in life. The only reason people move is to be more comfortable and to have a more appropriate setting, you know, and that doesn't make any difference if you're getting married or divorced or having a baby or relocating or whatever it is. It's all about finding a good fit for your lifestyle. And um, I, I would totally agree that that's, that is um, something that just needs so much education on. Um, how how do you help people, you know, get break that myth? I guess. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought up the 
the concept of just what's going on in our current lives, because I think as we go through life, we make decisions on where we live based on different times in our life. So, you know, in college, we look for apartments and things that are just easy to get around, things that are going on in the city. As we have kids, we look for homes that really can accommodate the growth of our family and can accommodate um, schools and parks and all of those opportunities for kids. And then when they move out, we downsize and we simplify. But when we get to the point where um, we are getting older and we do have care needs um, and we are isolating more, we just freeze and we think that we need to stay in that home. And, And to me, it's really not about the home. It's what the home has represented to the person. It's about the memories that have been made in the home. It's what that relates and identifies to them as. But one of the things I think we we as a society need to shift our mindset on is I hear the the tagline a lot, aging in place. And mm-hmm. people equate that with staying in our home. And I think we need to shift our thought process to aging well. And what do we need to have in place to age well? And that could be different things for different people. It may be staying in the home and maybe um, financially that is the best option for them. But really looking at what is going on in their current lifestyle, their current situation, their current needs, their current support system, and really putting together the best environment and the best uh, support system that's going to allow them to age well and not just age in place. I I think that that is a, a huge thing that you just said. It's not about aging in place because that can mean not moving. Um, and, and yet I don't think that that's the context that most people thought about, you know, they were, they were talking about aging well, and most people want to age well in their current home for as long as they can, but we need to talk about safety and comfort and, and meeting the needs. Um, I, I think also tied into that is, getting people to have an open conversation about this because it's such a, it's it's like a voodoo um, kind of taboo-y thing out there that, you know, if I talk about moving, then people are going to look at me as less than. And if I bring it up to my folks, then I'm going to look like a control freak. And, you know, and so then these conversations, they just, they don't happen because people don't feel comfortable in terms of talking about how they really feel and why why the move might be beneficial and analyzing those pros and cons. I'm glad you bring that up, Lori, because I think a lot of people avoid the conversation, but a lot of people don't understand those emotions that they're going through and that they're typical thought processes. Uh, one of the reasons I wrote my book, and probably the main reason I wrote my book was to get people to start having the conversation or even just to start thinking for themselves, what is it that I want? What is it that, um, how do I envision my life in the later years? I always tell people to have plan A and then to have plan B. And plan A is in a perfect scenario. What would that look like? What would my retirement look like my later years? Plan B is really what happens when life happens, when a diagnosis happens, an emergency happens, a spouse passes. What does that look like? But as you mentioned, so many people don't have that conversation. They wait until life happens and there's an emergency, there's an event, and then all of a sudden they're thrust into making some of these significant and important decisions and they have no basis on where to start, what they should even be looking for, um, and how to really understand the emotions that they're feeling that go along with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's tough. You know, I when I sold real estate, it was so common for families to just get into these huge fights over a move. If kids brought it up, parents thought that they were being told what to do and they were feeling like they didn't have control. Parents didn't want to bring it up because they didn't want to bring it, be a burden or be looked at as needy. And so then everyone would just kind of stop and stagnate. And and kids didn't want to bring it up, A, because of the fight, and then B, what if they agree with me? I got all this stuff to do and I got no time to do it. Exactly. And and I think 
it's about providing services and there's tons of services out there to help people through these moves, you know, from painters and cleaners and, and moving companies and um, people that will actually pack everything up and unpack you. So you, you can go to a movie and lunch and come home and be all set up at a new place to um, selling stuff on eBay or shipping it off to family or giving it away for donations. There's, so much support, but people don't know that it's there and how to they access don't. it. No, and, and I always tell people education is power. So whether or not you need services down the road, if you take the time to really understand what is available and what you would utilize in the event of needing to make some decisions, it's going to make that process for you and your family so much easier. But one of the things that I have noticed is not only in getting people to have the discussion, but how to have the discussion, mm-hmm. how to ask the questions um, to their parents or to their spouses. And again, there's there's a lot of guilt associated, whether you're a child feeling like your parents aren't managing or you're a spouse that's burnt out on being the care provider. There's a lot of emotions that keep people from having those conversations, but then when the time comes to have the conversations, really knowing how to go about it so that it isn't defensive or um, look like there's ill intentions with it, but it really is because you love someone and you want to make sure that they have the best quality of life possible. Exactly. Now, in your book, you you um, talk in, in Chapter 3 about defining independence. Can you define independence for our audience? Because I think that there, there are some kind of twisted signals in that. You know, independence to me is a personal thing. I think it varies for people, and, and that's why I ask that question is because I want people to think about what that looks like beyond staying in my home. Um, if if they're active, if they enjoy the outdoors, if they um, are social, they love to drive and meet friends for coffee, whatever is in place that allows them to keep living their fullest life um, and, and keep being the person that they see themselves as, to me, is independence. And that's where, when I say having the right support in place would allow that, if somebody's very social and they're involved in bridge club or they like to meet the guys to have coffee once a week, but they no longer can drive, they become dependent on somebody getting them there. Um, So this is just a simple example, but if they were living in a community where all of that was available right outside their apartment door or right outside their home, and they could still get there and still participate and still be active and do the things that they enjoy, there is a sense of independence, a sense of dignity, a sense of still having control in their day-to-day decisions. So it's really what is in place to allow you to live the life that gives you the most meaning. I I agree. And it, it isn't, you know, and I think part of it, too, is the philosophy of, I, I think of my my parents who have now both passed, but you know, the goal for them was to buy a house and stay there forever. And nowadays you're seeing people move more frequently um, and change their lifestyles. So I think there's a little bit more acceptance than there was with, with their generation. And, and I also think like the boomers, they want services and they want, they're, they're not afraid to ask for help um, in a lot of cases. <laughs> um but again, it has to be in a dignified fashion, and it has to be framed appropriately. And and people have to see that there's still good living going on wherever they choose to go. And that's a, I think that's a personal choice. That's an attitude choice. A lot of it, in terms of wherever we decide to make our home, is what's our attitude going to be? I mean, we could, we could be destitute and still have a good life. It might not compare Absolutely. to absolutely somebody else's but our attitude can really frame our relationships and and our interactions and I think that that's the richness um, one of the things that that I saw when I saw sold real estate was people would stay in their home because they wanted to be independent 
yet they they shut half their house down so that they didn't have to clean it and heat it, you know, or air condition it, and whatever it might be. But they, their space got very limited, and um, and yet they still had these overall costs and responsibilities, and they had stress of trying to do maintenance that maybe they, they weren't able to do anymore and they didn't want to ask for help and they didn't really want to pay to have it done. And then um, and then I would see this other side when people would actually make the transition to kind of coming out of their shell and families being shocked at, you know, it's almost like a, a cocoon and a butterfly coming out. They just saw this, this socialness that had shut down because some of them were so set in staying in place and yet everything else around them had changed and moved and they didn't have the friendships and the relationships and they got very solitary and very quiet and didn't even know what happens gradually over time. And then when they moved into this community setting, they just blossomed. And I have um, seen that time and time again. Yeah, it's, it's so much. incredible, isn't it? Um, and I think that that's something that we have to, you know, as a society, we have to get that out more, you know, that because so much of it, it happens to all of us at all ages when changes happen slowly, we don't even notice the changes because they're so you, subtle. You bring up some really good points because <laughs> I had to laugh when you're talking about people shutting down parts of their home. As I've worked with families over the years, and we're used to having these big spaces, families would say, well, I don't want to downsize to a 1,200-square-foot apartment. I've been living in a 3,600-square-foot home. I always ask them how much of that home they're using. Mm-hmm. And it, it's the recliner to the kitchen to the bedroom. Um, but the other aspect is the social aspect that you bring up. You can stay in your home and still have a full social Life. It's really, again, looking at what the current situation is, because if you're still driving, if you're still involved, if you're still getting out, that might not be an issue. But if you're not driving, if you have mobility issues, um, if you're isolating yourselves, then it is an issue. And there really has been so many studies that have shown that the lack of social engagement, and not just seeing family, but that peer-to-peer social engagement has a significant mm-hmm. impact on health, on well-being, on quality of life. And I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm managing. I'm managing okay. Mom is still managing. Life is not meant to be managed. It's meant to be lived and enjoyed. And that social interaction is critical to cognitive, to physical. All of those things are impacted when we don't have that peer-to-peer engagement. It really is so important. I I think of even when my mom moved into a nursing home, which I would counsel people in terms of making these transitions, um, you know, as health changed and maybe more support was needed if it was home health care or if it was moving into a community or whatever. But when it came time for my own mom, oh, no, I could do better than the rest of the world. She's coming to stay with me. (laughs) And and it was so funny because here – I knew better, but yet I I felt the pressure as a daughter, I think that societal pressure of, no, I'm supposed to do better, I'm supposed to do this, and, and it's not about us, it's about what's best for them. It's about having this honest conversation. So getting people to have a true conversation is, is so critical, and I, I remember sitting down with families explaining you know, to the parent, for example, the fear, have the kids explain the fear they have that someone's going to fall or get hurt um, and the sleepless nights because of that or the stress of running here or there and then having the parents talk about not wanting to be a burden and having their independence and just getting all that stuff out on the table where everybody could understand that they really want what's best for the for for everybody, you know, um, in the yes. situation, and how do we support for, that? Absolutely, for everybody in the family. I, you know, a typical phone call for me. Um, I'll, and I would say probably 
80 to 90% of that initial contact is that adult child. It is that kid that is concerned about their mom that's seeing things aren't going quite right. Um, so a typical phone call, they would call in and say, you know, my mom has fallen three times. Um, she's 94. She's still living in her home, but she's completely independent. And so my question to them is always, what is your mother independently doing for herself? Mm -hmm. Well, I cook all of her meals. I pick her up and take her to all of her appointments. I set out her medications every two weeks. Um, and then all of a sudden the light goes on that my mom is completely dependent on me and my independence is being compromised because I'm taking care of all of those things on top of trying to manage work, home life, all all of my things and that my immediate family may need. So it really, having that conversation, as you put it, seeing it out on the table, putting it in black and white really helps to see what is going on. And the other thing I always start with is there's always something that's not going well in their current situation that makes people look into senior living services. And so mm -hmm. if they can articulate what is happening that's made you look into senior living services, that is what all of the decisions should be based on going forward. So when those emotions come up, when the guilt comes up, when the anger comes up, it really is easy to tie back to the reason that we're looking into these is to meet the needs that are currently going on. Mm -hmm. Yep. When do you think this conversation should take place? Before it ever needs to take place. <laughs> I mean, I so I say that because, again, it's getting people to be proactive. One of the biggest fears of moving into a community or having help come into the home is people feel like they're going to lose that independence and sense of control. So I tell people, take control. Take control and educate yourself. Find out what's available. Have a discussion with your family. Put a plan into place. Put a backup plan into place. Take control and maintain your independence as far as being a part of that decision and that dialogue. Mm-hmm. Well, and even, um, you know, in your book, you have a, a chapter on engaged living, you know, making that, that pros and cons list. You have a um, chapter six is about calculating the real cost, you know, with things. And I think one of the things that, that I saw, because, I mean, I would see a lot of people in crisis that had to move and then there was no choice. Somebody fell, they broke their hip, boom. You're mm -hmm. going to go wherever there's an opening, and you might not be able to go back home, depending on the situation, because they waited too long. And the the other thing I would see would be people who made the move, and it was almost kind of like a hip replacement. They're going like, oh, I should have done this years ago. You know, they they, they were with, in pain with their hip, not wanting the surgery, and then after go, oh, that wasn't so bad. I I, I really should have done this sooner and gotten on living my life. And I think that same kind of thing happens when people struggle with should they move and if you can get out there and explore you know different options there's tons of different options most of them are even right in your own backyard and um and, and people i think are shocked at how beautiful they are in the services and how independent people look and how healthy they look and that a, a nursing home that used to be dark and, and dingy and a uh, you know strong smell of urine isn't that way anymore at all. No, it's not. It's really become more of a overall well-being um, lifestyle, which regardless of if you're living in your home or in a community, really should be the focus. And you're absolutely right. I would say 99% of the time when people make a move, they're not ready because mm -hmm. for all of us, change is difficult. It's scary. But those same 99% of the people, once they've made the move, say, why didn't I do this sooner? There's so much more going on in their lives, so much more involvement with just being a part of life. And I always, when I think about home and someone that's isolated in home, our homes don't keep us company. Yep. And they they just it. don't. And it's, it's just interesting to me um, how afraid we are 
to really make changes. And I think as we get older and as things become more difficult to manage, we do tend to want to hold on to what's familiar and what we know. And like you said, sometimes those changes just keep happening so slow we don't realize that they're getting the best of us until it's too late. Yeah. Yeah, we get we get stuck in our ways. And, you know, one of the things that I see, too, is um, the more connected people are to cities and who are used to city transit and other types of transportation, those moves sometimes are a little bit easier because they don't have to have their car or they don't hold on to it as strongly because they, they already have integrated other ways of getting around and being independent, where I think that that can be another factor of, Staying in the home, if I move, then maybe I can't have my car. Or there won't be room for it. And how will I get around? And and um, I, I see that a big piece of the equation, too. I, I've had moved people that didn't drive but still kept their car and paid for a garage yes. space. Yes, it's a sense of identity. And it's mm-hmm. getting your license and your cars coming of age. It's independence. It's being able to go whenever you want to go and, and do what you want to do. And I think as we lose some of our abilities um, and as things get more difficult again we try to hold on to things and and that car represents um, that sense of independence and I've seen people just with a lot of things that really come to identify people I had a pharmacist who his biggest loss of independence was losing his license to to be a pharmacist and so anything that really gives us a sense of identity that as we accept changes through different stages of our lives, we're going to want to hold on to. Yeah. And when you mentioned stages of our lives, I I like that because I think a lot of times it has been framed that when you give up your house, you're at the end stage of life. And it's just another stage. That doesn't necessarily mean the end stage. It's just another, it's just another stage. Um, one last question. I, I want to touch base with you um, on this uh, particular segment is, you know, a lot of families say, well, it's mom or dad's decision or their aunt and uncle's decision. They're not going to face, you know, force them to move into a community. What are, what are your thoughts when when you hear that from a family? That's a very typical thought process. Um, and it, it's a delicate dance because you do want to honor people's choices and you do want to respect those choices. But I think the role of a decision maker, I call it a key influencer, but the role of a child or a spouse or a caring um, family member or friend changes as the needs change. So if somebody has dementia and is not able to process all of the de- details that go into making decisions, they're probably not going to be able to manage the complete um, task of making this type of a move or decision. So I'll get families that I work with that the loved one has Alzheimer's or another dementia, and they say this has to be mom's decision. And when I ask them what decisions they're currently making for their mom, they're managing their finances, they're managing everything, but then they want to put this decision back on their parent. Um, and another thing is to really look at how decisions have been made in the past, the significant decisions. If you, your parents, let's say one spouse passes and the spouse that passed away was the one that always made the decisions throughout their life together, now you're putting a significant decision on someone that really never had to be the decision maker that's overwhelming. And so I encourage families to say, to ask their loved one how confident they feel in being able to make this type of decision. What help do they need in making this type of decision? What role do they see their loved one as in the decision process? And there are times where if somebody has advanced Alzheimer's or dementia, their loved one is going to have to make a decision. Or if somebody has waited until an emergency their loved one will have to make a decision. And that's where I go back to having this conversation and making decisions before you have to because that is your best opportunity to be the most yeah. engaged in the decision. Yeah. being Having that education, uh, it just makes everyone more confident going forward. 
and it, it just it eases the burden, you know, and I mean, accidents can happen to any of us any of the time. But when we when we know we're aging, when we know our family members or friends are aging, we can be proactive. We can look at things. We can prepare for for ourselves and for others. I mean, I, I see a lot of people going, used to go on tour saying, oh, it's not for me. It's for somebody else. And it's like whatever it takes. If that's your mindset, you know, still get out there and look and have that knowledge and share that knowledge with other people. Because I think so often people would say, well, gosh, you know, our best friends just moved and they just they just made this decision out of the blue. Well, no, they didn't. They were thinking about it for three or four years, didn't talk about it with anyone because they were embarrassed. They were uncomfortable. But then it came time you know, for them to, to kind of step out of the box. But even with friends, people don't have these conversations. So it's not even just family in the judgment. It's it's friendships. I, I saw that expand too. And I think it's just something we have to be much, much more open, open about in terms of um, how can we live our best lives? And, and what does that look like? And maybe our friends come with us. And, you know, when we build a new community together, we don't live on a block. Now we live on the same hallway, you know, or in the same building and can still have that sense of community or build a new sense of community, which I think is a real beautiful thing. I want to make sure that we have some time to talk about um, the Alzheimer's Association and, you know, just the, the growing need and impact on on our nation as a whole and you know why is you know why should people be um i don't want to say worried but in enlightened and concerned about the growing numbers of people living with dementia really good question Lori. um what i have found with alzheimer's and other dementias is very similar to just my my life in the senior living arena, and that is that people don't want to have the conversation, that there are a lot of stigmas associated with it, um, and, and that really can impact diagnosis, getting support, all of those things. But you were asking about the impact that, that Alzheimer's and other dementias are having on our country as a whole, and so I just want to share a few staggering numbers um, that just mm-hmm. really shed light on the impact that this is having on our country. So currently, Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, and it's the only leading cause of death that currently does not have a prevention, treatment, or cure. The other thing that's really um, unfortunate with this is it's the only leading cause of death that the mortality rates continue to increase instead of decrease. Mm-hmm. It just between 2000 and 2015, the numbers of deaths increased 123%. So that is just some quick numbers. But the other thing is, as a nation, there's over 5.7 million people diagnosed or living with Alzheimer's. But what that, on top of that, is there are over 18 billion hours of care giver hours provided. So there's 16 million Americans that are providing unpaid care for someone with Alzheimer's or another dementia. The value of that care of those 18 billion hours is estimated at $230 billion. So this is not just impacting those that are diagnosed. This is impacting the people around them, the families around them, the people that are the the ones that are still trying to earn their living and save for their retirement and provide for their own families. So it is impacting us as a country significantly. And just in 2018, the estimated cost of Alzheimer's or dementias and dementias was $277 billion on the country. That is only estimated to go up. And so the impact that that's going to have on our medical system just on our economy is something that people need to start paying attention to that we need to start having a a conversation on. Yeah, we've got to get to the Congress um, and to our researchers, you know, in in terms of looking at this and really finding 
um, a viable cure, but in order to find a viable cure, they got to figure out what the heck's causing it. And, um, you know, I know one of the things that, that I would like to see um, us look into is, is not just um, a cure, but social supports, social and, and uh, psycho, uh, psychological supports for not only those diagnosed, but, the, you know, their loved ones um, taking care of them as well. Yes, you you brought up a couple things, and and I'd like to talk on both of them. You had brought up the um, just the advocacy piece, which is a big part of what the Alzheimer's Association does. Just two weeks ago, the Alzheimer's Association, 1,200 people from around the country, whether they were Alzheimer's Association staff, volunteers, or advocates, met in Washington, D.C. to talk to our congressmen about these concerns. And so the Alzheimer's Association advocates on a on a local level but also on a national level and there was three things that we went to our congressmen for and one was the increase in commitment to Alzheimer's research Um, and just a quick thought on that this the second biggest hurdle in research is not having people willing to be involved in the research and participate Mm -hmm. so we we need to have active participants in the research and if you go to alz.org um, com, there is a link on trial match, which is how people can find out if they qualify for different trials and can participate in research. But so that that actually that 425 million in increase for research funding that we asked for was approved last week um, by Congress. And then the other two things, and this second one really lends to what you just spoke about um, and really getting that support system in place and that infrastructure. But I don't know if you're familiar with this, but I think it really, um, it would really speak to you because you were so involved in really getting the first dementia-friendly community in America. This is that. It's the Dementia Bold Act, and it's it's called the Dementia Infrastructure for Alzheimer's Act. But it's really a a bill that would create that public health infrastructure to address Alzheimer's and other dementias. It would provide for opportunities for people to really um, identify what's going on more um, and get that public health intervention in place. So that is a bill that we're we're asking Congress to to pass. And then the other one is the um, Palliative Care Act. And again, it's really educating and training our communities, our care providers on palliative and hospice care support and how that can really make for a positive um, and better outcomes through end of life. So there's a lot of work going on to get um, Congress involved and to get these things put into place. And as you know, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, but Wish it our would. <laughs> people, it, and, and people can get involved. There's a lot of ways to advocate. You can write letters to your editor. You can write letters to your congressman. Get involved on a state level. Get involved in that advocating um, for these things within your local community, but really on a national level as well. Yeah, and, you know, and it's, it can be so much fun. You meet the nicest people um, through this process. I mean, I, I just... I just have felt so honored with the people that I have met over the last nine years that I've been doing this. Um, It's just, it's been incredible, the friendships that I've made and the changes that I've seen, you know, occur. Granted, they're not happening as fast as I'd like, but they're moving a lot faster than they were, (laughs) you know, and that happens when we, when we work together collaboratively, you know, we're just a, a more significant force and it's, and it's rare to find someone, um, even like yourself, who hasn't been personally touched by dementia. Most people, you know, have had a, a friend or a loved one who has had some form of, of dementia or dementia symptoms. And, um, and most people are eager to learn more and be able to figure out how to be able to help. And um, so I, I definitely would encourage them to to get involved and and take part. And I love the the Dementia Bold Act. Um, that would be great if we could get that in place and and have more access for people. I I just um, I think that that is so needed. Um, so 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 it is. needed. And- 
if people want to get involved, again, they the website ALZ.org. There's a lot of what a lot of people don't know is really the Alzheimer's Association is focused on research, and they are one of the top um, funders of research. But there is a huge care and support piece for providing that support for people currently impacted. And if you think about the fact that there are over 5 million people diagnosed and living with Alzheimer's, we are just reaching 1.5% of those people. There's a mm -hmm. lot of people that need to know that the services at no cost are available to them, whether they're support groups or memory cafes or um, education classes for even their employees, their loved ones. There's online tools that are available. But the biggest thing that I think is really just such a lifeline for families is our 1-800 number, and that is a 24-7 free hotline, um, and it is available in over 200 languages, but it also is just master-level clinicians that are there to really help provide support, connect people to the support that's going to help them, or maybe just cry with them when they're frustrated and they don't know what to do and they don't know how to maybe deal with a new behavior of a loved one, but there's resources out there so that that care provider and that family member does not feel alone. Mm -hmm. Well, and I have to tell you, I have just been hearing, what, and, and I travel around the country and, and speak and train, I have heard just a wonderful response to the 1-800 number. I don't know necessarily what's changed in the last like year and a half, um, but just an elevated amount of wonderful comments that they've saved my life. They've taken me, you know, they, they've really supported me and helped me understand this. And um, we're managing so much better um, now that we've got, got this support. And uh, I, I don't, like I said, I don't know if there's been a change or if more people have just heard about it and are tapping into it, but I have heard a significant difference in terms of, of comments and appreciation for your 1-800 number. Well, that's that's wonderful to hear. And I think that there is definitely uh, more awareness that that is available. Um, there have been so many um, studies that have shown that getting that early diagnosis, that early intervention, that early support in place really does make for a much more manageable and um, optimistic experience with this. And so, again, have the discussion. A lot of families, um, I've seen people that don't want anybody to know that their loved one's been diagnosed, and then people that really embrace and get involved and take advantage of all of those services available and have a completely different experience. And so mm -hmm. I would just encourage people that if this is something that they're going through or a loved one is going through, because as you said, most people will and are impacted on, on some level. And, and as we start having those conversations, you'd be surprised at who is sitting next to you that's going through very similar things. Well, and so, so much of the time, I mean, there's still that stigma out there that a person with dementia is late stages. You know, they're wheelchair bound, they can't communicate, they're drooling, you know, they can't hold their head up. And that's that's not true. There are people on our roads driving cars still working you know that are that have have symptoms and um, some are diagnosed and some aren't yet um, some have been diagnosed but haven't even been told the diagnosis from the doctor because the doctors aren't sure what to tell them so there's there's just so many levels of education and I think you know, I think we've gotten to to be a world of categorizing and pointing out everyone's differences, and I, I think I, I think we've gotten to the crux where people are seeing we can't do that anymore. We have to come together as one. We have to be more tolerant and accepting, and we have to learn from. Um, different behaviors and, and different beliefs and different, and that includes different diseases, you know, because nobody signs up and says, Hey, give me dementia. Let me walk this path. I mean, that's not the way this works. You, you're kind of struck down with it and people have to pick themselves up and they're trying to merge back into the lane of, of normal life. And, and we need to help them with that. We need to learn to walk graciously 
you know, with the disease because, my gosh, we could be next, you know, or our loved one. And we have to really think seriously on how would we want to be treated? How would we want our loved one to be treated? Because if we are not being proactive, we are, you know, we're basically throwing that out out the door and saying, oh, it's just not going to happen to me. And with the way the numbers are growing, that is a very scary thing to do. Well, and I, I don't think we have the luxury of that. Um, it, it, it's interesting because we as a society um, have accepted, you know, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, um, but we still haven't accepted Alzheimer's and dementia as um, there's a lot of stigmas associated with it. And when we have the conversations, it's not just as someone diagnosed or a family member, but it, it's as a community, as healthcare providers, as um, legislative members, all of us need to have this conversation. And I think the education part, the education piece in going on and understanding what the disease process is, um, what that is going to look like, really is going to allow us to walk alongside that person that's impacted and be that best support that we can be. But if we don't understand it and if we keep our head in the sand and we don't want to have the conversations, we're not going to be able to support um, those around us that are impacted the best that we can. Yeah, and uh, that's a, a great, great point. Um, we just, we really need to to work together, you know, with this and and get beyond our fear. I mean, you look at cancer, you look at AIDS, you look at all the fear that was behind those and how people, you know, have, have come up and, and raised above that and just said, okay, we're going to push this to the side and we're going to live the best life we can and we're, we're going to try to eradicate this in the meantime. And it's it's been amazing to me how much has changed. And with dementia, there's lots of lots of great things happening out there. There's so much hope. There's so many resources. Um, but you're not going to find them if you're not looking for them. Um, when you talked about stigmas, I do a thing called Dementia Chats where I interview people with dementia. And we just released one on stigmas, education, and adapting. And I have, I think there's five or six people living with dementia. We have this discussion. It's about an hour long, but it's filled with wonderful insights and tips for both those diagnosed and and the rest of the world on how to live graciously with this and, and what do we need and how do we get there. And, you know, it's not fear-based. It's just a, it's a reality check. And um, it, it's very thought-provoking. And so I would encourage people to, to check um, things like that out and, and listen to the voice of those with dementia. And, and um, they have great insights. And, you know, they're going to help us change our culture, you know, if we, if we open those doors. So I, I just think that that's very, very important. Now, um, you had mentioned the 1-800 number. I know you guys have tons of information that people can download, too, if I'm not mistaken, on your site. Can you talk about that? We do. And I would say, really, um, between the 1-800 number and the website, alz.org, if you just went to that, that could direct you to really what it is that you're looking for, whether it's wanting to get involved as a volunteer, wanting to take some online education classes for yourself, um, find out where a local support group is. We do um, training for care providers that are providing care uh, for people impacted. Um, we have what we call our core community education programs. And so no matter what state you live in, what city you're in, um, there's por core programs that really um, are available for the community at no cost. Uh, know the 10 signs of Alzheimer's, the basics of memory loss, dementia, and Alzheimer's, effective communication strategies. And just that in itself um, for families on how to communicate with someone through that um, progression of the disease saves so much stress and anxiety and, and heartache, um, dementia conversations. I love what you do with that um, Alzheimer's um, conversation that you were just talking about. Oh, the dementia chat, yeah. 
Yes, the dementia chats. We we um, are working with a family here that got involved because she was diagnosed with early onset at 52. And so if mm-hmm. you want to see a picture of what we think it's not, I mean, a lot of people think it's an elderly disease. This is someone that is was, you know, high in her career and, and successful and just engaging and so lighthearted and involved in her community and is living with Alzheimer's. Um, Mm -hmm. It it really, to hear her story and the impact that that's having on her and her family and how they're getting involved and how they're dealing with this diagnosis, it is helpful. It's helpful for them, um, the people that are diagnosed, but also the people that really are trying to understand how to be a support. But we also provide classes that are just proactive classes, healthy living for your brain and body, um, also understanding and how and responding to dementia behaviors. You know, behaviors really are a form of communication, and it's how our loved ones are communicating with us. And if we understand that and understand how to work with that, um, it does make for a better outcome for both both involved. So there's just a lot of resources um, and there's there's so much more that I haven't talked about, but again, if if people want to go to the website, it really can just um, navigate them on all the different ways to get involved. Yeah, there's there's tons of of different information. You guys do support groups. I mean, it's it's endless, and there's chat rooms, and um, you know, there's just lots and lots of good good resources out there. Um, so you can you can get more information um, regarding Catherine uh, Owens and, you know, her book called Be Your Own Hero, Senior Housing Decisions Simplified by going to KatherineLOwens.com. Um, and then you can always go to uh, allsalz.org. Um, for the Alzheimer's Association website, or you can call their 24-7 helpline, which is 800-272-3900. Again, that's 800-272-3900, or again, allsalz.org. And I'll just repeat Catherine's website one more time. It's Catherine L owens.com any last comments that you'd like to share with our audience Catherine Uh, just to start having the conversations it's um, it's the only way that we can really just be proactive in ensuring our own quality of life and I just appreciate all the efforts Lori that you do in getting people to have those conversations well, I think it's all about taking the scary out, you know, and once we lay it on the table, the the fear, you know, we shine the light on the fear and it kind of, you know, it's not so scary anymore. Um, I, I think our own minds can make things a lot worse um, than they have to be. And when you, you know, when you're scared, when you are able to share that fear with a friend, you feel supported and it, it lessens it no matter what it is, even even if it's really, really spooky to you. Um, it's not going to be quite, it's not going to have the same edge. So, you know, have an authentic conversation about what do you want your life to look like and what's important to you and, um, you know, how, how is that going to unfold? And, um, and don't forget about getting your powers of attorney and healthcare declarations and your wills and stuff in order. We should all have that when we're 18. This this kind of stuff should not be end of life issues. This should all these conversations should be about living well, period. And living responsibly. And 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 I think if we if we can shift that mindset, it'll take a lot of the scariness out of it. So Again, um, Catherine Owens, it's just been a pleasure to have you with us. And again, I would encourage people to go to her website and check out her book, Be Your Own Hero, Senior House, or Senior Living uh, Decisions Simplified. She does a really nice job breaking that down. In wrapping up, I'm just going to give a shout out to a couple other organizations. Um, one I want to mention is the Senior American Senior Magazine, which is a lifestyle magazine for seniors on topics of nostalgia, health, and wellness. 
and they interview and spotlight um, notable Americans, uh, older Americans. And you can get more information by going to the AmericanSeniorMagazine.com. Again, AmericanSeniorMagazine.com. And um, I'd also like to mention calendar cards. It has a memory system. And calendar and cards both start with a K. Um, They also pull together the Memory Cafe directory. um, And you can go directly to that as well by going to the MemoryCafeDirectory.com. Have a wonderful um, holiday weekend. And uh, we will talk to you all soon. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.